we continue our journey uh, into this incredible revelation that God has given us where he's describing to us the relationship that we have with him and how that relationship impacts the relationship we have with one another. So it's just a, a fascinating ride and specifically as we enter this weekend, jumping into some incredible things that I think are just transformative on every level. So I'm, I'm incredibly excited to be here with you all this weekend and to jump into this. So as many of you know, or, or may know, uh, my wife and I have eight children. So our eight children all still live in our homes. So they're all present uh, because they're all 18 and under. And so we are constantly in the dynamic of, of that large family dynamic, 10 of us buzzing around doing stuff, going nuts. And, and something very specific occurred over the last few weeks because uh, the early part of every year, we have a string of birthdays. We have six birthdays in eight weeks. And so it's just one birthday after the next. So six of our children transition to the next age category. And this particular year, what that meant was that we now have seven children 12 years and older. So seven of our kids are 12 years old or older than that. Now you may say that, that's wonderful, Rena. What significance does that have? Well, it has a massive significance because in the state of Florida, when you turn 12 years old, you are allowed to sit in the front seat of a car. Oh, you all are doing the math, aren't you? Hold, hold on, hold on. One seat, seven children. So now you know exactly how that rolls, right? And it's been, it's been going on because, you know, we had two fighting over the front seat, then four, then five. Then when the sixth one became 12, there was this like, the seventh one was like, oh my God, my, my day is coming. And so there was this, this anticipation of how we are going to work that front seat. And so now when we leave the house, there is a mad dash uh, for the front seat and who's going to get that front seat. So at first I thought this will be great because it'll get the loading journey to expedite itself because usually they're slow as molasses. And so I'm like, now we can at least move it, but it doesn't work that way because when they get to the car, the incredible fight that ensues at that car takes 10 minutes to undo, unravel, and sort out because there's multiple injustices and I was supposed to and promises were made and shirts were left on the seat to save it days ahead of time, but that doesn't work. And so then I find myself managing like, no, that's not a rule and this is not a rule. So eventually I'm like, you know what, that's it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick a document on the door that goes out of a garage and I'm going to assign who is in that seat every time so we don't have that fight. I, I had the thought actually of telling them, I'm going to save the seat for Jesus. That way none of you can ever sit in it because it always just stays empty for Jesus to come and sit there whenever he wants. But I knew that wouldn't fly. So I just stuck with the, we're going to create a schedule and they're like, no, please, we'll do it better. And I'm like, well, we'll see. But, but here's the reality. As much as the fighting over that one seat has certainly escalated because there's seven of them vying for that position. The truth is that that fight over seats has been ongoing uh, the entire time. We, we drive a sprinter van, which means we have 12 seats in the van, and there's 10 of us, which means that there's always at least two empty seats available. And so in the back, 10 of those seats exist. Now, of course, one of them's in the front. So they're, they're really between the seven uh, uh, kids that are left, there are, they are 10 seats, which means there are always three seats that are, that are up for grabs. So you'd think that would be a no-brainer. 
There's always a seat for every one of you on this bus. How awesome is that? And yet somehow that doesn't translate. Oh no, because apparently there are premier seats and coach seats on my van. And so even in the back, there are massive uh, struggles for which seat you're going to get. So, so my kids, when it comes to entering into the van, they vie for position to get the best seat in the house so that they can have what they want because they are thinking about themselves in that particular context, right? So that's what I tell them all the time. I go, this is the dumbest thing to fight over ever, and the reason you're fighting over it is because you are not thinking about your brothers and sisters, you are thinking about yourselves. And as long as you think about yourselves, then this is about you trying to get what you want or what you deserve, it is always going to result in this kind of mess where there is anger and malice and injustice and madness and fighting and, and bickering and all the stuff that does not in any way demonstrate our passion for God or his passion for people. I tell him that, right? This is exactly what Paul was dealing with in the church of Corinth. Because if we're honest, can we just be honest? Not a whole lot changes when we become adults, does it? I mean, the kind of bus we're fighting over changes. It's no longer seats in a car, but now it's other stuff. We fight over position and process and realities that we're seeking out for ourselves. And that is not only uh, out there in the real world, it is right here in the church world among biblical community. We fight over the colors of chairs, whether they're chairs or pews, or whether they're this instrument or that instrument, whether you have a choir or you don't, or whether the, the preacher wears flip-flops or doesn't, or whether it doesn't really make any difference. And the second a place gets totally full, we even fight over actual seats. Oh, that's my row. We, 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 we reserved that, right? So this is what we do. And Paul is writing to the church in Corinth to essentially say to them, look, 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 we in Christ now, because we've come to know Jesus as our Savior, we are ambassadors of Christ, and we are to demonstrate our passion for God and his passion for people. We are to be living out in our behaviors with one another and in the world in a manner that demonstrates redemption. This is what we are to do. And so you guys, because you are vying for position and elevating self, are not doing that. Your behaviors are the opposite of demonstrating your passion for God and your passion for others by demonstrating his love for them. You are just demonstrating your love for yourself. And so he's writing this letter to kind of say, guys, look at all of the things that are a giant mess because you are focused on self. I mean, think about it, right? He has written about dissension. He's written about vying for who's the wisest. He's written about why they fight over who you follow and who I follow. You have lawsuits going on where they actually started suing each other because, no, I want that, I want that. When it comes to the context of the worship gathering, which is chapter 11, 12, 13, and 14, Paul is writing about the wealthy sitting at the table of communion, overdoing it while the poor can't even join the table. He's like, what kind of insanity is that? Uh, they were looking at the spiritual gifts and, and, and using those to elevate themselves, and he's going, that, that's ridiculous. Uh, they were in every way, even in gender realities, trying to outdo each other. So he's like, man, do you see what a mess this makes when we are focused on, on, on ourselves rather than on what God has called us to? And then in chapter 13, 
of 1 Corinthians. He's in the middle of dealing with spiritual gifts and how they were vying for position uh, through the spiritual gifts. And he kind of stops and he goes, look, 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 look. Here's the deal. I mean, I can, I can make rules. I, I can write orders on a door. I can tell you how to do that. But at the end of the day, if you do not love the other people in the church more than you love yourself, it doesn't matter what we deal with in this letter. It's never going to go well. I tell my kids that all the time. Look, at the end of the day, I can manage it. I can assign seats. I can do this. And I'll keep you safe for a a, a certain period of time. But if you can't say that person's well-being matters more than mine, this is never going to work. Have you ever had those moments where, uh, where, where you're, you're talking to one of your kids and you do that three and a half minute awesome, beautifully articulated lecture, you have a personal story in it, you brought a perfect illustration in, three scriptures to back it up, you go to them and you're like, do you see their eyes are getting larger and larger as they're, uh, as they're gaining insight from your wisdom and you get to the end of it and you say, Did, do you understand what I mean when I say you need to love them more and they look at you and you wait for the awakening statement and they go, but he took my seat and you're like were you even listening this was good stuff it was on the fly and and it was so good how do you go from there to but they took my seat well frankly the same way we do right see Paul is saying you got to love others more than you love yourself and we go yeah you know that's good that's good love is patient Love is kind and long-suffering. It doesn't envy. It is not jealous. It doesn't boast. Ooh, I like it until Monday. And then Monday comes and somebody does something that hurts your feelings. They cut you off in traffic and, and suddenly now you're like, eh, not so patient, not so long-suffering and definitely not so kind. See, the, the reality is my kids live the same life we live as adults. We know that loving is ultimately the answer to being able to demonstrate our passion for God and his passion for people, but it is hard to sustain genuine love day in and day out, isn't it? I mean, it's hard to do with the people you love the most, your best friends, your spouse, your children. Is it not hard to sustain ongoing genuine love for them? How hard is it for the rest of the planet, right? And so as much as Paul says, this is what love is, and this is what we need to be able to demonstrate our passion for God and his passion for people, we also realize that to sustain an ongoing genuine love of this caliber is next to impossible, in fact, if not impossible for us human beings. So how do we do it? And this is exactly what Paul is about to do. He's about to come to the end of 11, 12, 13, and 14 where he was dealing with the context of the worship gathering and how we behave toward one another and why we do because we love. And he's gonna come to the end of that and say, now listen folks, here's the key to how you do all of this. How you sustain this kind of love and then out of that love, how your behaviors end up being demonstrations of your passion for God and his passion for people. That's how this works. And that's exactly what we're going to get into now. So grab your Bibles and let me show you what I mean. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you're using one of the Bibles we provide, it's page 664. Page 664, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as Paul enters into this passage, here's where that major shift takes place now. Remember, from dealing for four chapters now with the worship gathering space and how we deal with each other within the biblical community and specifically within worship gathering. And he's now gonna go, okay, let's zoom back out again and get back to the big picture. I want to remind you, Paul's gonna say, of some things that now that we've been in the weeds for a while, you may have forgotten briefly. Okay, here he goes. Take a look what he says. Verse, uh, chapter 15, verse one. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Whoa, big surprise. Are you guys all blown away? Is that where it starts? You're blown away, right? Who knew that the gospel was the answer to all of it? And you're going, wait, wait, Renaud, I think we already knew that. Well, yeah, you see, we we know that if Paul's going to come back to something every single time, what's he going to come back to every single time? He's going to come back to the gospel. He's going to go, now that we've talked here, and we've talked about love, and we've talked about behaving this way, and we've talked about demonstrating this way, I, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you. And here's the danger we face. So I want to warn you now so that you know. Here's the danger we face. We human beings, we are intrigued and fascinated by things we are unfamiliar with or confused about and then discover. So in other words, if you didn't know something or you didn't see something coming and it surprises you, then we're all moved by that. But things that are utterly familiar and common to us, we are rarely moved by those things. They're just ordinary. And so what could happen very easily is we could be dealing with something like spiritual gifts and specifically prophecy in tongues and how that all works in a space like this. And we're all like, ooh, we're so excited. Tell me, how does it work? And then when we're done, you're like, wow, that's amazing. And then the next week we jump into gender realities and men and women in church and women shouldn't speak and men should, but that's not actually right. That was a mistake. And we go through all that. And then you're like, whoa, that's amazing. And then the very next week, now we're going to talk about the gospel. Oh, well, we already know that one. We already know how the gospel works. So that's cool. I mean, I like the gospel. Don't get me wrong. But it's, you know, it's the gospel. Jesus came, he died, he rose again. I mean, I got it. It's not that complicated. And you see what could happen is that in that very move, we miss the extraordinary wonder of what Paul is about to do. So I just want to encourage you as we enter into this space now. Paul begins here, my brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you and he's about to enter into the space. Let's just pause for a second and go, okay, we're going to get into gospel stuff now and that's sacred, extraordinary territory. And we're going to discover some things here that I hope stir you in places you have long since been stirred because some beautiful stuff comes out of this and we realize in this that everything else Paul has said rides on this next section. All of it. This goes, everything goes. This stays and everything's going to be okay. This is everything. So Paul says, look what he says. Chapter 15. Now I want to remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you. And here he goes. This is where it begins and the extraordinary beauty of the gospel emerges which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. That's how he starts. I want to remind you of the gospel that you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. 
Now we can read through a sentence like that and breeze right on by because again, it sounds pretty common, right? You guys all get that. That was not complicated. You received it, you stand in it, you're being saved by it, got it. But in this sentence, Paul is giving us a vision of the extraordinary nature of the redemptive story of God that we know of as the gospel. The gospel is the story of God and his great work in life to redeem us. Okay, so when I say gospel, that's what I mean. This is about Jesus doing what he did so we can have what we have. That's the gospel. And here's what Paul says about the gospel. He says, You received it at one point. What tense is Paul using when he says that? That is a past tense reality. So he says, I'm reminding you of the gospel that you once received in the past. We can all relate to that, okay? We once received the gospel. I can ask any one of you that know Jesus, tell me, When last did you encounter the gospel? Or when did you encounter the gospel? And you would take me back to a place where you first heard the gospel, where it was first brought to your attention, and where you first came awake to it because the Spirit of God was making you alive. And so you'd be like, oh, I I can tell you. Remember, for some of us, it's a little more gray. Sometime between the ages of five and nine, I remember this all becoming clear. Great, that was where you first encountered the gospel. So Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel that you once encountered when I preached it to you. Why is he doing that? Because that past experience of the gospel is a critical piece of us finding ourselves in the gospel every day. Because when we first encountered it, we moved from bondage to freedom, from death to life, from darkness to light, and that human experience was something else. For some of us, it was drama, big dramatic, and you're like, oh, it was amazing. And for some of us, it was a journey. But nonetheless, it was this awakening from what we were to what we're now discovering. And it began to shape everything about why life is and how life is and what that means about life. And he goes, when you think of the gospel, I want you to remember the gospel you once received. It is a past reality for us that we encountered at one point in our life that had dramatic change. But then he says this, that is not all the gospel is. He says, the gospel you once received, the gospel in which you now stand. What is the tense there? That is a present tense reality. But it is also a past tense reality. It is a past present tense as though you are standing in it now and have been standing in it since that past encounter of receiving it. Do you see what he's saying? So he's saying the gospel you once received that you are presently and have been standing in and are standing in now. What Paul is beginning to remind us of as he reminds the church in Corinth is that the gospel is not simply a message that had information that transformed the way we were thinking and therefore changed our life. It is a reality of our redemption, our rescue, who we are, and it is the very thing that still to this moment holds together our safety. Jesus didn't just once save you. He is saving you every second of every day. 
because the fact that you're in him is why you are saved. You with me? If you're not in him, you are not saved. And so the fact that it happened and is happening is an ongoing reality. It doesn't mean that you can walk out of being saved. It just means that you can't forget that it didn't happen once in your past. It is happening right now. It is happening right now. The gospel is like a, like a little submarine deep, deep down in the dark ocean and around you, if you were outside the submarine, you would instantly die. But you're not outside the submarine, you're right inside of it. And so he wants to remind you every day to go, oh that's right, I'm safe here. That's awesome, I'm safe here, this is awesome. Because it is not just a past reality, it is a past present reality. The gospel is with you now and it is the very essence of what keeps you saved. It is the grace of God. It is the gospel. And then he says this, the gospel that you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Isn't that an extraordinary little sentence right there? The tenses there are all crazy, aren't they? Because you would think it would say, and by which you once were saved or by which you will be saved. But it is this, it is by which you are currently being saved. It is an ongoing process. So what is that tense? That tense is a present future. So you've got a past, you've got a past present, and you've got a present future. The fathers of uh, the church history, uh, they often referred to this reality of the gospel, this past past, present, present, future reality as God keeping us in the gospel. He, we are kept in the gospel. And so what Paul is saying is, listen, when you remember the gospel, I want you to understand what I'm talking about when I say the gospel. The one you received, remember that, that's incredible. The one you are in, remember that, it's right now. And the one that is and will save you. The extraordinary thing about the redemptive story of God, about the grace of God, about the rescue of our Savior coming for us is that he simultaneously, once and for all, finishes the work and yet the work is still progressive. So in other words, I am saved by the gospel. I was saved by the gospel and I am being saved by the gospel. But just because I'm being saved, it doesn't mean I might not be saved because I'm gonna be safe, because that's a guarantee. When I received the gospel in the past, I was sealed by the Holy Spirit and guaranteed by the work of Jesus that I will be saved, and yet I am being saved. And so the point is that God wanted us to know that this incredible grace that we call the gospel, his redemptive work for us, is a work that is moment by moment critical to us and moment by moment informing us and moment by moment impacting us so that we are in awe moment by moment because it is not what we often experience it as, a past reality with a future implication. That is not the gospel. See, we think of it that way. I once heard a message about Jesus coming, dying, and rising from the dead. I received that message as my own and became a Christ follower. I put that reality in my back pocket and I'm holding it so when I die, I can pull it and go, I know the gospel. See, it's a past reality with a future implication. And what Paul's saying here is, no, 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 no. 
It is a present reality with past and future implications. It is always here, and you are always only saved right now because of the redemptive story of God. That's why you're saved, because of the redemptive story of God. And so he's saying, remember that gospel. Remember that. Let me remind you of that. And then he says this, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. So the holding fast, what Paul's saying here is, let me remind you of the gospel in its past, present, and future reality that is for you now, was for you then, will be for you in the future. Let me remind you of that. And, and, and please, hold fast to it since you believed. Otherwise, it is all in vain. What is the point? See, Paul's saying that if we don't hold fast to the gospel, remembering the gospel, then all the other stuff he talked about, loving in, in 1 Corinthians 13, and out of love behaving in a manner worthy of the gospel, demonstrating our passion for God and his passion for people, none of that will happen. It cannot be sustained. It's only sustaining power is when we hold fast to what God has done for us. And then something wondrous happens. So you must hold fast to the gospel. You must remember it. That's awesome. I mean, I'm inspired. I want to go do that. But tomorrow's Monday. And then it's Tuesday and Wednesday. And between now and Wednesday, there's going to be seven deadlines, 26 carpools, 19 fights, and that stupid front seat is still in that stupid car. And so I'm going to deal with all of that. And somehow in the midst of all of that, I got to go hold fast to the gospel. And so he's going to say, okay, listen, let's talk about what that means. Let's talk about how we hold fast to the gospel and why we ought to hold fast to the gospel. What is this thing we are holding fast to? And where is the space we have to say, yes, this is something to continually grab a hold of and remember. Take a look what he says. Now he's going to unpack the reality of the gospel as we ought to hold fast to it. Starting in verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So interesting that Paul would say this right here because he's kind of bookending the entire journey of 1 Corinthians. There's a little more information in 15 and 16 that ties to the gospel, but for the most part, he's done with all the behavioral stuff, right? And remember where he started in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1? So 1 Corinthians 1, he does a little intro. He says, you guys are a giant mess. There's dissension everywhere. And then he starts here. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he goes, I, when I came to you, I made sure I didn't preach with eloquence and inspiration to try to trick you into stuff. I, I stood firm on preaching two things, Christ and Christ crucified. That's it, right? What is Christ and Christ crucified? It is the gospel. So he said, when I came to you, I wasn't trying to convince you of anything. I was just bringing the gospel. So now he says, I want to remind you of what I told you in the beginning was of first importance. The gospel is where everything begins and the gospel is where everything ends. The gospel is everything in between. The gospel is the reality of Christ's redemptive story for us. And without that, none of it matters. None of it matters. Now he says, allow me to deliver to you of first, uh, uh, as, that, uh, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So there he begins. This, is, this happened in accordance with the scriptures. What scriptures is Paul referring to here? And why would he be referring to scriptures? 
Well, first of all, let's talk about what scripture. So is he referring to the gospels? He must be referring to the gospels. Wait, that's not possible because we're still in the middle of the book of Acts and the guys that wrote the gospels are still trying to manage this insane new New Testament church, right? They're like, what is this thing? I don't even know. And they're dealing with deacon issues and elder issues and problems and stuff. They're writing letters that James has written his letter. We already re- read through that one. Paul, we think, has written Galatians by now, but we're not totally sure. And so just a few letters are out there. Ephesians isn't written yet, nor is Philippians. Those aren't on the table. The gospels aren't written yet, so we don't have those. Okay, maybe the book of Acts, that's the one. No, because we're only halfway through the book of Acts when this letter is being written, so the book of Acts isn't even finished being lived out, let alone being written. So we have no scriptures yet. In fact, there is no New Testament yet. So when he says, let me remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, Christ came and died for our sins according to the scriptures, and then he lived and rose from the dead according to the scriptures, what's he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament, that's right. He's talking about the Old Testament And this is a beautiful reality because it tells us two things. It reminds us that the authenticity of the gospel does not begin uh, at the life and times of Jesus. Jesus wasn't a man on the planet that did some awesome stuff. And because he did, some other men thought it was worthy of following and then told us about Jesus and said maybe, just maybe, the reason Jesus died and the reason Jesus came back from the dead was to redeem the entire story. They didn't make that stuff up. That didn't come to them in the New Testament. That was a careful unpacking of the beautiful revelation of God from Genesis to the end of the Old Testament where God promised this entire story before it ever happened in such acute detail that a man like Paul, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, in other words, he had memorized the majority of the Old Testament and certainly acutely knew every part of it, could say, according to the promises of God in detail, this man that we have called Messiah is the one. So if you ever wonder whether we have gospel authenticity, go back into the Old Testament. I mean, you see prophecies in the book of Psalms, in the book of Jonah, Hosea, Micah, uh, probably the most wonderful display of a direct unpack of what happened in Jesus' time in Isaiah 53. I mean, you just read Isaiah 53 and you're just like, are you kidding me? I mean, God may as well have just told us his name. I kind of did. I mean, he just, just kind of went through and this is going to happen, then this is going to happen, this is going to happen. So when you see that happen, then you know why. And he even gave us the why. Jesus didn't come to live, die, and raise again so we can all go, that's super cool. We had a reason for it because we needed redeeming. So Paul says, listen, when you, when you remember the gospel, remember that the gospel has authenticity that runs deep and has been an ongoing story from the very beginning of our humanity. And we are just the recipients of realizing this promise right here on the planet. But as though Paul's like, that's cool, but just in case, you're still like, well, I don't know, are you interpreting Isaiah 53 correctly? Watch this, look what he says. And that he appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, even though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. All right, so here's what Paul's actually saying to the church in Corinth. The reason I'm so adamant that you remember this story is because this story's authenticity 
requires attention to it that is different than any other story because here's the point. If Jesus actually did these things, then that changes everything, didn't it? doesn't it? I mean, that changes everything. If this story is actually true, that changes everything. And guess what? The story is actually true. You see what Paul's doing? If this is actually true, that changes everything. And by the way, it's actually true. One, because it was in the scriptures, and two, because you can get on a horse, ride to Jerusalem, and go find any one of 500 people, some are dead, okay, I'll give you that, but most are still alive, and sit down with them and say, okay, talk to me, Jesus risen, really? Yep, I saw him here at this event. Talk to the apostles, yep, we saw him here and here. It is beautiful that he says, you're welcome to go check it out. Now, the Corinthians already knew this, they didn't need to like, he wasn't trying to prove something, he was trying to remind them of something. The, the, the gospel you believe is real. It is so real. And because it's real, it changes everything. You must hold fast to it. You must. And as though that's not enough, then in my opinion, one of the most beautiful displays of where we find the wonder of holding fast to the gospel happens right here. Verse eight. Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. See, Paul just made this personal. So right into the church in Corinth is like, listen, I can tell you all sorts of stuff about this, the Old Testament scriptures. I can tell you all about Peter and the apostles and the 500. I can tell you I've interviewed them, but no, 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 no. Listen, as one untimely born, he also appeared to me. What does Paul mean when he says, as one untimely born? I've, I've seen entire papers written on this. I mean, it's not that complicated, folks. Have you ever had one of those situations in your life or you know someone that does, that they, they birthed two or three kids and then their kids were like 13, 16, and 18 and then you got the phone call, um, uh, we're pregnant. They're like, no. Was this planned? Planned? Are you out of your mind? Our youngest is like 16. No, this isn't planned. It just kind of, here we are. And then this baby comes and then you're like, oh. And then three or four years in, you, you always hear the story, always, without a sh- you, you know what? Yeah, he wasn't, obviously he wasn't planned. I mean, we're, we're 90 and our kids are, and, and, and he's like three, right? But then this, this is the sentence that comes out right after that. But we can't imagine life without him or her, right? So as much as he was untimely planned, he was perfectly purposed, right? That's what we always say. And that's what Paul's saying. It's not that it was a mistake. It's not that it shouldn't have happened. It's just in our experience, it's a little late. And so it was a little untimely plan. So he says, I, like a child born into a family late, like a child born into a family late, I came late, but I'm just as much a part of the family as any one of the other kids. That's what he's saying. As one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now there's the authenticity, but watch where Paul goes now. This is so beautiful. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So here's what Paul says. Okay, you all know he appeared to me. You all know my story on the road to Damascus, but let me remind you that I had no business having Jesus appear to me. I had no business having Jesus do that. See, I was not in a place where I was doing anything worthy of having him reveal himself to me. 
I was, I was God's enemy. I was, I was trying to kill the people of God. I was so stuck in my legalism and my own self-righteousness that I was trying to eliminate the very gospel that he would bring to me. I have no right to this revelation. That's what Paul's saying. I am the least of the apostles, the least of all, an enemy of God on the road. And if Jesus did see fit to show up on the road to Damascus, he shouldn't have been showing up telling me stuff. He should have been showing up to kill me. See, Paul is abundantly aware of what should have happened on that road. Jesus should have been showing up to say, ah, Paul, wrong team, wrong place, sorry, dead. (laughs) That's what Paul deserved. He was an enemy of God. And so Paul says, listen, I had no business having Jesus reveal himself to me. But look at this. But by the grace of God, I am who I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I have worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. He uses grace three times. He says, I had no business receiving revelation from Jesus. I had no business having Jesus not kill me when he revealed himself to me and in fact show me grace and make me someone. And I had no business once he made me someone to have him cause me to participate in the story of redemption, which I have done with all my might and yet not because of me, but because of his grace. Folks, let me tell you something. Paul's story is our story. We are exactly the same story as Paul. Do you think you had any business having Jesus reveal himself to you? Do you think you did something to deserve that? Do you think you pursued God in some way so that you would come to know him and he saw your deep pursuit of him and went, wow, this person loves me and showed himself to you? No, 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 no. No, we have no business having Jesus reveal himself to us. Ephesians chapter two, do you remember this? Paul wrote that too. He says this, once you were dead in your transgressions, chasing after the pleasures and realities and passions of this world, separated from God, enamored by the prince of the air who is now at work in the sons of disobedience and you were by nature children of wrath. Ephesians chapter two. But... Because of God's great love for us, he made us alive in Christ Jesus. See, we are Paul's story. We were tracking down a road as a human race and as individuals chasing after that which was our flesh, captivated by that with no interest in Jesus. And yet he made himself known to us by making us alive. We were his enemies when he came for us. Wait, that sounds familiar. Is that somewhere? Oh wait, yes, Romans chapter five. Yet, while you were still God's enemies, Christ died for the wicked. That's you and me. We have no business receiving the revelation of Christ. We have no business being made alive in Christ. And yet he has done that by his grace. And that would be enough, wouldn't it? that he makes us alive. That he makes us alive would be enough. But that's not where he ends. See what Paul is saying here in this is, you wanna remember the gospel? Then remember this. 
He rescued your soul. He made you alive in Christ when you had no business with that. But he also redeemed your future. He didn't just rescue your soul so that you'd live alive. He redeemed your future. He gave you a home. He gave you a place that you're going to. And what home did he give you? The kingdom of God. And how did he redeem your future? Here's how. You ready for this? He adopted you as a son or a daughter of God. He made you alive. That's awesome. But then he made you his. He adopted us into his family. Peter writes in his first letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a a people set apart for God, right? And then he says this, you are now children of God. You were once not a people, but now you are a people. You once did not belong to God, but now you belong to him. See, God rescued our soul, made us alive, redeemed our future, adopted us as children of God. And that would have been enough. But what Paul says here is, not only that, but he allowed me to participate in the redemptive story he is writing on this planet. In Ephesians chapter two, Paul puts it this way, because of his great love, he made us alive, adopting us as children of God, and then he says this, for we are his workmanship, Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared in advance for us to do. This is our story. It is like God is saying, listen, come join me in the story and I will use you to accomplish my purposes. And we come and say, I have nothing to bring. And God goes, I know, I'll give you all of it. I'll give you spiritual gifts. I've already wired talents into you. I've already created you with a personality, though a slightly corrupt version now with sin, but we'll work with that. I've brought you, I mean, all of it. And then God goes, don't you see It was always this way. I planned your story from the beginning to be this story of beauty. And so you go, wow, really? He goes, yeah. I make waffles on a Saturday morning. Some of you may know that. We do them from scratch, it's kind of fun. And my kids, uh, they always ask on Friday night, they fight over who's gonna help me with waffles. Uh, And and I I think to myself all the time, you might think that's sweet, they're fighting over who will help you. No, it's not. I want them to stay in bed because if I could just make the waffles by myself, that would be so simple. I'd get everything right. The waffles would move through the system like that. They'd be warm on the table and ready to go. And then I would call them all down. Come, children, the waffles are ready. And I would put some worship music on while I'm doing it. It would be kind of peace with God while making waffles. You know what it is instead? It is the wrath of children while making waffles, right? Because I got kids in the kitchen, three of them usually, too many hands in the kitchen, too many spoons in the bowl. Oh, Dad, I think this is sugar, not salt. How much did you put in? Uh, A cup, that was supposed to be a teaspoon. All right, well, we'll fix it. And so we have this disaster zone in the kitchen, a giant mess, but you know what? When it's all said and done, where are the waffles? Still on the table, nice and warm, perfectly made, because whatever the kids affect in that kitchen, I can fix it. But the fact is, I want them to be in the game with me. They have no business being in that kitchen, but I give them business. And we have no business participating in the story of God, sharing the gospel with others, demonstrating our passion for God and his passion for people. We have no business doing that. We mess it up so much, so often it's ridiculous, and yet God goes, I 
I make it my business to give you business in my kitchen. And as much as you mess up and put too many eggs in the bowl or stir stuff the wrong way or mess up with sugar and salt, don't worry, I'll fix it. Because at the end of the day, the waffles on the table are my responsibility, not yours. And when we sit at the table, I actually say, everybody, tell Cole and Rahel, thank you for the waffles. Wow, Cole and Rahel, wow. And secretly the dad knows, uh, if you only knew. (laughs) But for them, it doesn't matter, does it? Because they got to make waffles, didn't they? And so this is our life. We were made alive when we had no business being made alive. We were adopted as sons and daughters when we had no business being adopted as sons and daughters. And we were invited to participate in the story of God when we have no business participating in the story of God. And so Paul says to us, I want you to remember the gospel. Remember the gospel in its past, in its present, and in its future realities in your life. And in the implications that that gospel has had on your soul being alive, your future being redeemed, and your purpose being restored. See, the answer to us loving well, the answer to us in loving well, demonstrating our passion for God and his passion for people in the active behaviors that happen in our community and to the world, the answer to that is a clarity and an obsession with the gospel every day. So we must preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And we must preach the gospel to one another every day. And we must allow that preaching to stir in us an awe of what we had no business being part of and yet are so that we would walk out of here going, God, what you have done for me moves me so deeply that I am ready to do for others what must be done. Take my seat on the bus. Leave me the last one because Jesus has already been enough for me. And that's where our power comes from. And that's why Paul ends this way. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Hold fast because you know the story. Hold fast because you know the gospel. Don't forget it. Don't ignore it. Don't even let it lie. But stand in it that which you received and that which is currently saving you and worship so that you might love well. And then we will be salt and light to the earth. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that the simplicity of the gospel is so accessible for us, so easy to wrap our minds around, to kind of just go, wow, I mean, that's it. We received it and it, in, and it transformed. We stand in it. It is transforming and it is continually into the future transforming because we are being saved by it. We were made alive. Our souls were rescued. We were We were adopted as sons and daughters. Our futures redeemed and we were invited to participate in the story. Our purpose restored. God, the simplicity of the gospel is extraordinary and yet its complexity has no end. We could explore this rest of our life and we will not yet reach the end of the wonder of what your redemptive story really is 
and how it really works. Because your love is beyond comprehension. So God, may we leave this place stirred, spurred on toward love and good deeds because we have once again clarified your redemptive story, the gospel, have stepped into it, lived in it, absorbed it, and are worshiping you in awe because of it. And out of that worship, may we seek to be ambassadors of redemption, salt and light to the world, because you are salt and light to us. We love you, Jesus. Amen.